Speaking of my wife, um, whenever I prepare for a sermon, I have a general routine that I like to follow. And a simple but important part of that routine for me is I talk to my wife, Tina, about my general outline of my sermon, and she'll give me tips and hints, sometimes useful. She'll say stuff like, tell more stories, or that's not very clear. Uh, Many times it's more humbling than helpful. She'll say stuff like, I don't think that's what that passage is about, John. (laughs) Or that makes no sense, John. Uh, But this week, I think I got the most positive affirmation from her I might have ever received from her when I told her I was going to use The Bachelor, the television show, for my introduction. And her response was, nice! Exclamation point. I'll definitely pay attention to that. Yeah, so you're in for a treat. <laughs> uh, to be honest, I don't really watch The Bachelor, okay? Um, I just happen to be in the room when she watches The Bachelor. And, uh, but I do know the general premise of the show. And for those of you that don't know, it revolves a bachelor and their quest to find true love. And the process starts, for those of you guys, how many of you guys watch The Bachelor? I know you do. <laughs> uh, well, so for the majority of you that don't, uh, the process of the show starts with The Bachelor or Bachelorette. And it starts with a group of, I think, 30 potential candidates. And each week, a couple of contestants are sent home by The Bachelor. They are not chosen. They are not lucky enough. Um, each week, a couple of contestants are sent home until The Bachelor is ultimately left with two contestants. And then he proposes at the last episode to the one he feels like is his true love. And I sit in the room while she's watching this show. And I, you know, it's cringy. And that's why I enjoy it, right? Uh, but the best and the most ridiculous and, to me, the most enjoyable episode is always the first episode. And the reason why I enjoy it the most, because it's, all, it's the episode where all the contestants get to meet The Bachelor for the first time. And some of these 30 women, they do the most outrageous, most ridiculous, most out there things. And they do it because they want to make a first impression. They want to be remembered. They want to start off on the right foot. They want to be distinguished from the other 29 ladies. And that's something that you and I understand to be true. That first impressions matter. They go a long way in setting the tone of heinous, what you want your reputation to be, how you want to be treated. Today, if you're visiting, we've been in the Gospel of John for a couple of weeks. And we find ourselves in the story about Jesus, very famous story, about Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee, and specifically the miracle that he does of turning water into wine. And right off the bat, there's a detail here that should grab our attention. Verse 11 tells us, if you guys can take a look, John 2, 11, it tells us that this miracle was the very first sign of Jesus' public ministry. It was the first sign that Jesus would show publicly to reveal his identity, his glory, and his power to the public. And scholar Reynolds Price of Duke University probably asked it best when he asked the question, why does Jesus, for the inaugural event of his public ministry, to display his power, to display his glory, why does he start with the solution to a mere social embarrassment? Put simply, why 
is Jesus. He's going to start off this process of demonstrating his glory and his power as the Son of God. And he does so by resolving a simple catering disaster. Of all the things that Jesus could have done, why is this the first sign that Jesus gives? Every leader, every politician, every organizer of a major movement understands that you're stepping out onto the scene. Your first sign, it's got to be compelling. It's got to be engaging. It's got to be powerful. You want to start off strong. And here is Christ's first step in telling the world who he is and what he came to do. And what we find is that Jesus doesn't raise a person from the dead. That would have been cool. He doesn't give sight to the blind. He doesn't even preach a sermon. Instead, Jesus chooses to make lots and lots of wine. And the question for us is why? Why this sign? What does it teach us about Jesus that he chose this particular sign as his first sign? What does it show us about Well, from the get-go, we are told that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are at a wedding. And in Jesus' day, weddings were even bigger deals than they are today. In fact, weddings in those days lasted about seven days. And to keep the party going, to keep the festivities rolling, to keep the joy alive, the central component of the wedding was the wine. It made the party a real party. And it was the responsibility of the groom and his family to ensure that there was enough wine to last the entire wedding. And we don't know what happened or what caused the wine to run, run out early, but the wine ran out early. And in a culture where the social expectation of the groom and family was to provide for the wedding, this was a disaster. A moment that was supposed to be a moment of celebration, a moment of joy, and festivity was about to turn into a moment of shame, a moment of guilt, until Jesus shows up and makes more wine. Why does he do it? Well, there's a character here referred to as the master of the feast in verses 8 and 9. His title is actually probably better translated Lord of the Feast, or Lord of the Table, Ruler of the Table. And the master of the feast role is similar to that of the MC of present-day weddings. His job, his only purpose in conjunction with the wine was to make the wedding fun. His job was to make the party a real party, to bring the joy, to allow people to have a good time. But the whole point of this passage is what? It's not the master of the feast that keeps the party going, but it's Jesus who keeps the party going. He's the one who brings the best wine. He's the one that makes the feast a great one. And by turning water into wine at a wedding as his first sign to bring joy, festivity, and celebration, what I think Jesus is trying to do is this. Jesus is the establisher of a new kingdom of God. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm coming into your life. I'm bringing this new kingdom. And this new kingdom will first and foremost be characterized as one of great joy. When I come into your life, you're going to experience great joy. 
It falls in line with what Isaiah, the prophet, writes in Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 8, where it reads, On this mountain, the feast will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up in this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. What is Jesus doing here at the, way that, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee? Who is he revealing himself to be by turning water into wine? What is he showing himself to be all about with this first sign? Jesus says, I am the true Lord of the feast. I am the true Lord of the table. And I've come to bring a kingdom into your life. A kingdom that is filled with the greatest joy. Jesus comes first and foremost into our lives to bring joy. Now, I don't personally drink wine. I'm not a wine drinker. And because I don't drink wine, my understanding of wine is minimal at best. So this week I was researching, Wikipedia about wine, and trying to, you know, like, okay, what is it? Why, why wine? And all I know about wine is from my research on wine this week and from what I've seen of others who do drink wine. I know you swirl it around in your glass like this. You, you inhale it in. You think you look super cool. But that's all I know. I also do know from people who do drink and enjoy wine that drinking wine is meant to be an enjoyable experience. That is meant to be savored. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be tasted. And much like wine, there is a world who has only seen others enjoy wine. Someone like myself who has only researched, only read about enjoying wine. There's a world of difference between someone who only knows about wine and someone who has actually tasted it. Someone who has actually experienced it. Someone who has actually savored it. Someone who actually enjoys it. And I wonder if there are some people in this room that when we hear that Jesus comes as the Lord of the feast to bring joy into our lives, to bring a new kingdom of joy into our lives, we hear that and we say, I already know that. Of course that's true, that Jesus brings wine. But I wonder if that's something that we only know up here. In the same way that I only know about wine because I've researched it. We haven't tasted it. We haven't seen that the Lord is good. We haven't tasted the graciousness of God. We haven't experienced what Paul writes about when he says, our hearts are enlightened by his goodness. We struggle with the very tension that Jonathan Edwards writes about when he wrote, the difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having the belief that honey is sweet and having tasted its actual sweetness. What is Jonathan Edwards saying? What he's saying is this. It's one thing to say, oh, I know he brings joy. 
But it's an entirely different thing to ask, has that life-altering joy become your reality? Or you say, oh, I know he loves me. And yet you find guilt. Or maybe you're like me and you find you're saying, God, I know you're powerful. I know you're in control. I know that you're sovereign. And yet you find yourself constantly anxious, constantly worried, nervous. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? And by turning water into wine as the inaugural event of his public ministry, Jesus establishes himself as the bringer of the greatest joy. Joy that is meant to be tasted and experienced. And the question for us is this, have you truly tasted and seen this joy? Has your life been shaped by it from the inside out? Because that's what Jesus brings. But how does he bring this joy for us? How does Jesus provide for us this great joy? Well, we see it in verse 3. If you can take a look at verse 3 with me. In verse 3, we see that Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to Jesus to inform him. Hey, son, there's no more wine. Now, lots of people get tripped up by Jesus' response to his mom in verse 4. Because he says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And the issue that many people have and try to explain is the harsh tone and language that Jesus uses toward Mary. And so they try to make it softer and nicer. Other translations add words like, dear mother, what does this have to do with me? But that's adding language that's not there. Because if you look in the original language, it reads, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It is a curt response. It is abrupt. It's emotionally charged. Jesus responds as if he is someone who is clearly disturbed or troubled by something. He responds as if there is something else weighing heavy on his mind and heart. And the reason why I think we can infer that is the rest of verse 4. If you take a a look at verse 4, it reads, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And the rest of the verse goes like this, My hour has not yet come. Now that phrase is very important for us to understand why Jesus responds to understand and how Jesus is going to bring us this great joy. Because what does Jesus mean when he says, My hour, and that it has not yet come? Here's what it cannot mean. It couldn't have meant that it was not yet time for Jesus to perform a miracle. It's not yet time, woman. It couldn't have meant that because Jesus goes on ahead and performs this miracle anyway. He turns these six pots of water into wine. So what does he mean when he says, my hour has not yet come? Well, you know, if you look at the Gospel of John, the phrase, my hour, or the hour, comes up quite often. And each time it comes up, each time it is mentioned, it is actually referring to a very specific hour. It refers to the hour of his death. If you can take a look at John chapter 7, verse 30, it's in your bulletins or on the screen behind me. It reads, so they were seeking to arrest him, Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
John 12, 27 reads, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. John 17, 1, the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour? The hour that is yet to come? The hour that Jesus is referring to at this wedding here is the hour of his suffering, agony, and death on the cross. The hour that was just looming around the corner. So why is it then that when Mary turns to Jesus and says, Son, they run out of wine, Jesus refers to this hour of his death. Why is that even on his mind? At a wedding of all places, a, a, a venue, an event filled with great joy and celebration, why is he referring and thinking about this dark hour? You know, a couple weeks back, I took one of my close friends shopping for an engagement ring. Flew down from San Francisco and he wanted to keep it a secret. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this, or his fiance. He wanted to keep it a secret. And he was like, John, can you take me uh, ring shopping? I was like, yeah, sure. Probably not the best guy to take you, but I'll take you. And what I found was that it was a pretty fun process. I was having a great time while he was shopping for the ring. Probably because I didn't have to spend the money. And I was like so excited. I was so happy. I was like, dude, this is so exciting for you. And he was like so stressed. He kept asking the guy if he could step out to walk around. And I was like so excited for him as I was talking to him. And as I thought about it more this week, I realized that the reason I was so excited for him was that I was reminiscing about the time that I was getting ready to buy a ring to propose to my wife. I was thinking about it. I remember the nerves. And I was just so excited for him. After buying the ring, I was driving my friend to my house and he was picking my brain about how he wanted to propose to his girlfriend. And he was like, oh, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm going to go to his, her family's for Thanksgiving. And he was sharing all these things. And to be honest, I didn't hear a single word. Why? Because all I was thinking about was the night that I proposed to Tina. The night that she said yes to me. That consumed my mind, consumed my heart. And I'm curious if you're the same way, that when you go to weddings, yes, you are happy for the couple that is getting married. Or when you think about your wedding day that is to come, all you can really think about is how your wedding turned out, how your ceremony was like, how hungry you were that day, how tired you were that night, how happy you were. And I wonder if during the wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus' answer to his mom gives us a glimpse of what is going on in his mind and in his heart. Because we know that one of the more popular metaphors that the Bible uses to describe Christ's relationship with his church is that of a marriage. With Christ being the groom and the church as the bride. 
And if there is one moment where we can look and say, here is the moment when the church officially becomes the bride of Christ. Here is the wedding between the church and her groom, Christ. It has to be that moment. It has to be that hour where Christ was subject to the agony, the suffering. It has to be the hour where his blood was poured out on the cross. Or as Jesus refers to it here, his hour. The hour he wins his, his bride by showing the world the greatest love it has ever seen. The very hour of his death. And I wonder if as Jesus is on the brink, he's on the verge of starting his public ministry. He turns water into wine here. Here at the very first step of this long journey and trek that is all going to culminate with the suffering, agony, and death of the cross. The very moment, the very hour he will win his bride. He is so consumed. He is so obsessed with that end that in the present situation, at a wedding, that's all he could think about. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour, my wedding, it has not yet come. It is not yet my time. How does Jesus bring this life-changing joy into our lives? For us to experience, for us to savor, for us to taste and enjoy? Jesus takes what you and I deserved at the cross. Jesus takes what his bride deserved, death, abandonment, separation from God. Why? So that you and I can enjoy, taste, and experience what he deserved. Life, joy, eternity with God. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper, or communion. And he establishes it for the first time as a practice for his disciples to regularly practice. And so he's sitting at this table, and he's showing his disciples, this is what I want you to do. He takes the bread, he breaks it, he dips it into the cup, and he explains it to them as they partake it in it together. He says, this is what's going to happen to me. He reveals to them the price that he will have to pay so that the church could be his, his bride. And Jesus offers the cup to them, the cup full of wine to his disciples so that they could drink of it. And he says, here, this is my blood, drink of it. But Matthew is very specific in chapter 26. He's very specific in detailing that Jesus does not drink of it. He offers it to his disciples, the cup of blessing, the cup of the forgiveness for our sins. He gives it to his friends, but he doesn't partake in it. Why not? But Jesus refers to it. He says, I have a different cup to drink. I have a different drink to drink. It is the cup of wrath, the cup of curses, the cup of death, the cup that you and I should have drank. Jesus takes the cup of death so that you and I can enjoy and taste, drink freely from the cup of forgiveness, the cup of everlasting joy. 
I found a quote this week while listening to a lecture from a professor. His name is Edmund Clowney. And I think it paints the perfect picture of what Jesus is doing at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it reads like this. At the wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus Christ sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow. So that today, you and I can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. How do you and I experience taste and joy, or taste and enjoy the joy that God brings? How does Jesus bring this wine? He sips the cup of death, the one that was reserved for you and I. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, that's cool. You summed up the gospel pretty well. But why does that matter? Why is that something that I should care about outside of our Sunday morning together? Why is this something that I should think about? Why is this something that I should care about or look forward to tomorrow morning on my way to work? Why is this something that I should think about as I'm dropping my kids off at school on Tuesday? Why does it matter? Well, we get the answer in verses 9 and 10. Take a look at verse 9 and 10 with me. It says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. The best wine gets served first. And when their taste buds are not as sharp, then the cheap wine gets snuck in there. And this is the way the world operates. That's the normal order of nature, isn't it? It declines. At first, it's wonderful. At first, it's romantic. At first, it's glorious. At first, it's butterflies in your stomach. But that's why we have this thing called the law of diminishing returns, right? Everything in this world, everything that the world tends to offer, it diminishes in its return and satisfaction as time goes on. And that's why the master of the feast is so shocked. Because the world serves the best up front. It serves the best wines up front. The wine of romance, the wine of success, the wine of power, the wine of possessions. It's so sweet at first. But in the end... And there's always an end. It will run out. And you'll be left feeling dry. You will feel unsatisfied. You'll be thirsty for more. But Jesus, you, this party, you saved the best for last. The wine wine is getting sweeter and sweeter as the party goes on. You know, I read a story a long time ago. You guys remember Chicken Soup for the Soul? Anyway, it's from the Chicken Soup of the Soul. (laughs) I read a story about a young woman. She was diagnosed with cancer, given three months to live. And so her doctor told her to make preparations to die. 
And so she contacts her pastor again to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. And she tells him, I want this song sung at my funeral. I want this scripture to be read at my funeral. I want to be buried with the Bible next to me. And so the pastor's taking notes. It's like, okay, okay, okay. And as he gets up, getting ready to leave, the woman suddenly remembers something and says, wait, there's one more thing. And so the pastor says, of course, what is it? And she answers, I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. He's like, what? You want to be buried with a what? I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. And so he asks, why? And so she explains. Because growing up, my grandma would always cook these amazing... She would enjoy this meal... And after the meal, my grandma would come by and she would clean up the table. She would take everything back into the kitchen. But as she was cleaning up, she would always whisper to me, keep the fork. And she explained, it would excite me. Because I knew that something great was on its way. It was often her luscious chocolate cake. Sometimes her cinnamon-laced apple pie. And I want people to see, in my, see me in my casket with my fork and wonder, what's up with the fork? Me. That the best was yet to come. Crossway Church, Jesus comes first and foremost as a king that brings joy into our lives. Do you believe that to be true? And he brings it into our lives by taking the cup of death, the cup of suffering, the cup of agony and wrath that you and I deserved. Have you tasted the joy that comes with knowing Christ? Are you tasting that life gets sweeter and sweeter with time? That the more and more you fall in love with Christ, the more and more you are seeing that he is unlike because he gets more and more beautiful the more and more you get to know him. Is the reality of life after death that for you and I, the best life is yet to come. Is that shaping the way that you view your relationships? Is that dramatically altering the way that you see your responsibilities that God has placed you to be good, faithful servants over? My prayer for us this week is that you and I would come to see Come to taste. Come to truly enjoy and savor the experience of joy that Christ brings into our lives. Let me pray for our time together.